Heavenly Father, we're here this morning before you, before your word, and so we ask you now that your spirit will, will soften our hearts uh, to your life as we see your life unfold here once again. It is so special just to see your life unfold in the Gospels, and we are thankful that we have this opportunity to see you, to see your greatness, to see your power. Lord, allow me just to, to be a servant, humble my heart now as, as, I, as I serve the people here at Gateway. And again, may you speak to us this morning, speak to our every need. Lord, we love you, we give you all the glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we continue our series on Mark, we've studied this for so long, and and. Maybe not some of you, but if you recall, we, we taught this uh, last or this past February in Ukraine. And so Rod and I have been kind of working on the book of Mark for some time, um, even in preparation as we, before we went to Ukraine and, and teach, to teach this uh, for our Simeon Trust workshop. You know, we were just going back and forth and, and just reading this and reading this and reading this. And of course, the guys, when we went to Ukraine, we, we told them to keep reading you know, read, read, book, read the book of Mark over and over and over. Read the passages over and over and over. And then we actually would preach Mark as well. And so for some of you, the gospel accounts are, you know, it's, it's pretty familiar, I would assume, especially if you studied it all your life. Uh, I know in Bible school, but also in seminary, we're, we're studying the gospels. Uh, I mean, almost word for word, chapter by chapter. Uh, we're going through the gospels. Every, every, you know, every time there's, there's a class, we just we take it to the gospels. And so as we continue our series through the book of Mark, it's easy to, to grow numb toward the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry. And what I mean by this is that as we keep reading through these instances on the life of Christ, it's easy to sort of tune out. But I wanted to submit to you this morning to let this be a challenge to your heart, to not look past these stories. Let me tell you why, and I'm going to borrow an illustration in which I recently heard, uh, and I shared it with the adult Sunday school last week. You know, when you read and hear about Christ, I want us to think that the Holy Spirit is trying to hammer down the gospel into our hearts. And here's what I mean. You know, just, just imagine uh, that this is a piece of wood. I know it's my Bible. Uh, and, and this is a nail, and, and I'm just hammering it away in the piece of wood. Now, what happens if I just gently tap on that piece of wood? You could easily fall out. Am I right? You could easily just pull out that nail. But if I keep hammering the nail harder, the deeper it sits inside the piece of wood. And therefore, it's harder to pull back out. So if you think about that, that's what we're doing here in the book of Mark. You know, as we preach through Mark, The Holy Spirit is hammering down Christ into our hearts by virtue of the preached word so that Jesus will be embedded on our hearts. I mean, do we get that? Here's why we need the gospel deep down in us, church. Because when the storms of life hit you or dark opposition attacks or disease disables you or death overwhelms you, Jesus Christ will be the light that shines ever so brightly in our hearts. And it's from there we're able to turn over the darkest pages of our life 
even death, because Christ is hammered down into our very soul, into our very being, and nothing can pull him out. Therefore, Sunday after Sunday, we pray that as you walk out of here, praising him, singing songs to him, Jesus is on your hearts. And this morning is no different. Allow me to take you back to our text, but remind you of a couple things as we go to this buildup. If you remember, Mark is an expert storyteller, and he's walking us through who Jesus really is. Every scene is thought through. Every detail, even the minor ones like Jesus sleeping, is accounted for. Nothing is by accident. And so in our text today, we have this buildup of Jesus' power. If you recall the past couple weeks, right, we we saw Jesus' overwhelming power over creation, where Jesus showed us his power over the danger of the storm, as Ed mentioned this morning. And if you recall, once again, the disciples faced two fears that day. They faced the storm, but there was a greater fear in Jesus Christ because they saw his divine-like power. Last week, we saw Jesus' power over darkness, where Jesus showed us his power over the demonic world. And let's not forget that his power over darkness will ultimately be defeated on the cross, where Jesus will crush Satan's head once and for all. Therefore, the buildup could not be any greater than than the one we're about to encounter this morning. And out of the three pictures Mark paints for us in these stories from the end of chapter 4 through chapter 5, two of them, listen here, two of them are new to the audience. Really, the disciples. If they witnessed Jesus' power firsthand. The first one, obviously, what I just mentioned, Jesus' power over creation, right? That was a first for the disciples. They've never seen anything like that. But second... It's no surprise, at the end of chapter 5, our text today, we're going to see Jesus' power over death. And it's the first time that we're going to see this type of power in chapter 5. Therefore, my aim this morning is fairly simple, and it's this. Mark reaches the climax of the three vignettes by showing Jesus' power over disease and death. This text will show us his power over that, over those two Power's there. And I'll do my best to sort of unpack this for us today. So bear with me. And, you know, I set myself up last week or a couple weeks ago. I said 40, 45 minutes when I was praying. And so I was like, man, I hope I don't go over 45 minutes. So um, I don't know how long I'll go today, but I'll, I promise I won't keep here past 1.30 because we <laughs> only have this place till 1.30. But I want you to know this, dear friends, that um, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see him through this power. Don't don't ever take these miracles at face value. It goes much deeper than that. I want us to see the greatness behind the power, but also I want you to see his compassion, his humility, and his wisdom. And today, we're, we're, we're gonna see all of that in Jesus. And so my hope and my prayer is that Jesus is hammered into your hearts this morning. 
Let's take a look at who Jesus is. First, it's not his power we first see. It's not his power that we first see this morning, but it's his compassion over the distressed. His passion, his compassion over the distressed. Look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, just giving you some context here, here we find Jesus coming back from Gerasenes, right? Which would have been the Gentile side of the sea of Galilee. He comes back to his own people. He comes back to, to the Jewish side. Thankfully, there, there are no storms that hit the disciples uh, once again. And so I don't think, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll mention this. You ever, you ever think about when um, Jesus calmed the storms, how the disciples got to the shore? If everything was completely calm, you think the disciples said, you know what? You calmed the storm a little too much. We need to get to the shore, Jesus. I don't know. I don't know why I mentioned that. But again, I'm thankful that they got to the other side, right? But here's Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing, right? He's continuing his teaching. This is nonstop Jesus. He's on the mission to proclaim the gospel, right? He's, he's doing ministry 24-7. He's preaching to the nations, right? He's going from Jew to Gentile, back to the Jews in Capernaum. That's what he's doing. Are we witnessing Jesus' ministry as he's preaching to all peoples? And every time he would preach, the crowds are gathered. Again, like I mentioned a couple or a month ago, the crowds are in the tens of thousands. And people are listening. People are witnessing Jesus' power. Right? And this whole time, who's with him this whole time? Who's beside him? Who's next to him? The disciples. Right? This is hands-on seminary training. Because in chapter 6, next week, the disciples are about to be sent out. And so they're getting this training from Jesus himself. Which takes us to our scene. In Matthew's account, it's during this time he was teaching about fasting to the crowds. And then he gets interrupted by someone. But this someone is no regular Joe. We read that it's someone who's important in society, and that someone is in great distress. His name is Jairus. And we find Jairus' distress over his daughter. Jairus' distress over his daughter. Look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, j just imagine this scene here. We find a father in great distress over his daughter who's about to die. Again, this is no ordinary person in society. But he was a ruler, as it, as it mentions, right? So be, before we continue, let, let's get an idea of who, who Jairus is. Like, as the text mentioned, he's a synagogue ruler, right? He wasn't a rabbi. He was but a layman. Some say he was, he was probably in charge of, of, of the synagogue, of the facilities. And being a synagogue ruler, he probably heard of this man named Jesus after all his teachings. Right? He probably maybe even heard his preaching maybe even witness some of Jesus' miracles. It's fair to note that Jairus was a man of respect, 
and distinction because of his status in the synagogue. Some would also say that he was, he was a man of wealth. Again, to be clear, he was an important person in the community. He probably had an abundance of resources to pull from when in need. Yet what we find here is someone who is so deep in distress that he humbles himself before Jesus' feet. Look at the text. It says, seeing him, he fell at his feet. The synagogue ruler fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. It's no secret why he came to Jesus. He didn't care about his status at this point. Mark makes the dire circumstance very clear to his readers that his daughter is about to die and Jairus is calling out for help. Mark's explanation is that this young girl was at death's door. She was literally breathing her last breath. One commentary put it this way, she wasn't in, in intensive care, but she was at the end of hospice care. So do, do we recognize the circumstance? Do we understand how important this is for Jairus and his family? Now again, let, let, let's, let's understand this together. Someone who is prominent in society, probably exhausted all his resources, comes to Jesus to seek help. This situation may be all too familiar for some of us. When death is imminent, especially with a loved one, there's no holding back. A father is doing what he's supposed to do for his daughter. More importantly, Jairus is going to the right person as death is hanging over his daughter's head. In his distress, he goes to Jesus. Church, listen to me. When you have no one else to turn to, you're forced to face Jesus Christ whether in this life or the next. And Jesus knows our darkest needs at our most darkest hour. Therefore, we see that he goes with him, as verse 24 indicates. However, something happens. Upon going with him, someone else comes, in, comes to Jesus in distress. And we find... Naturally, a woman, the woman, a woman in distress, and she's in distress over her own ailment, over her own disease. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. All right, so here we find Mark break away from Jairus' story to tell of another crisis. Some of, us, some of us or some commentaries will say, you know, it's the sandwich text where you get the bread, then you get the meat, and then you go back to the bread. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening here. Mark takes us on this detour to tell us a story within a story. Isn't that strange? Here's what we find. We find a woman who seemed like the total opposite of who Jairus is total opposite. And I think it's important that we get a good grasp on who this woman is, just like we did with Jairus. So we know that this woman, that she was unclean, okay? That's what it says. She was unclean. All the gospel writers wrote delicately about this woman's health problem. They didn't expose too much or too little, but they got the point across 
about her ailment, about her disease. We also know that this, this woman suffered with pain, probably weakened her, and was somewhat anemic of sorts, right? She was losing blood constantly. So again, she was unclean. I want you to also note what happens to a woman who would be deemed ceremonially unclean according to Old Testament law and is found in Leviticus 15. I'm going to read it for you. Leviticus 15, starting at verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond this time of her, of her impurity, all the days of the, of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Look, I know it's a little graphic. This is the Bible. It's raw. It's real. Verse 26, every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of her impurity. And everything on which she, she sits, listen, shall be unclean. And as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. I could go on. This goes on for a couple more verses. But everything she touches is unclean. Every person who touches her is deemed unclean. That's the Old Testament law. Keep that in the back of your mind. Second, she was isolated. She was also isolated. People were not able to come in contact with her, as we just read, right, and vice versa. I mean, just her being there amid the crowd was in clear violation of Old Testament law, right? She was violating the law. She was in the crowd, in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of the tens of thousands of people there. Also, this woman could not marry, or if she was married, she no longer could be with her husband physically. In other words, this woman was very lonely. Third, she was incurable. She was incurable. In Luke's account, Luke, the great physician, right? Or the physician, Jesus is the great physician, but Luke, the physician, the doctor himself, he mentions that she could not be healed by anyone. In fact, Mark goes on to say, she got even worse. Therefore, this woman's situation is far worse than we could imagine. Church, do we see the picture of her distress? Do we see the picture of Jairus' distress? And in her distress, in the woman's distress, she does the same thing that Jairus does, and she comes to Jesus. Now take note here. Someone who is prominent in society, Jairus, probably exhausted all his resources, comes to Jesus to seek help. But listen, the same instance is happening with the woman, and it's a different type of person. Someone who is marginalized in society, forced in isolation, exhausted all her resources, comes to Jesus to seek help. Two different people both need Jesus. Now, it was, it's hard to grasp why these stories were intertwined with one another at first glance, 
right? I, I sort of had to just kind of meditate and just read this over and over. And so here, here are a couple of things I, I thought about. And, and I, wanna, I want us to see it here on, on why this sandwich text was placed here. The first thing is we all have needs, okay? We all have needs. And I, I don't want to minimize what anyone is going through this morning, but the way this story is told helped me to see the bigger picture of the Christian life, specifically the church as a whole. Here's what I mean. Although we may have crisis in our lives, large or small, there are other things going on as well. Am I right? And I think it's a good reminder for us, especially now. It seems like every week we're praying for a catastrophe. Every week in this world. Yet, I know people in this church are hurting. Families are being broken. Marriages are being strained. Kids are being sick. And so as we are praying for you, we are praying for the world. And so all these things are going on. And I think Mark is painting this picture like, hey, there's, there's so many things going on in society. Rich or poor, those who are cast off, those who are in the center of society. But we present our request before him. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care for our circumstances because he's working on other things. But here's the thing, church. We must trust in his sovereign timing regardless of the situation. We must trust in him. We say it all the time. We need to be intentional. We need to trust in him. I mean, it's hard to think about others when you're suffering yourself. Am I right? If an answer is not immediate, we need to trust that God is working in our waiting. God is working in our waiting. I mean, look at this woman. How long has she been suffering? How long? 12 years. Has she not waited long enough? Can you recall the past 12 years of your life, let alone the past 12 hours? It's not that Jesus wasn't there the past 12 years. This just happened to be God's sovereign timing for the woman and for Jairus. And some of us are tired of waiting for God to act. Friends, let me say this again. This woman suffered for 12 years, 12 years of pain, 12 years of endless bleeding. You might be suffering today. You might be waiting for a long time, but trust in God. Jesus will answer our prayers according to his time. The second thing I... I that kind of popped out here, is that the gospel does not discriminate. As I just mentioned, the gospel does not discriminate between rich and poor, black or white, man or woman. By all accounts, Jesus is willing to come to all people's needs, no matter where you stand in society. Those who are marginalized and those who are at the center of the community, regardless of where you place Economically and socially, Jesus Christ looks beyond that and hears our call. I mean, take a look around and see for yourself that the gospel does not discriminate. Pastor Rod is a minority on the elder board. 
Think about that. And we didn't do that on purpose. Maybe, I don't know. But going back to our main point, in your distress, God is working in all believers' lives and we must trust in his timing. We may not see it, we might not see it at first or at all, but Jesus sees it. He knows our pain. And we also, church, we must understand that others are suffering. You could present your request before the Lord, but understand that others are suffering. So I charge you to continue to look to Christ. You're all doing a great job. I just want to say thank you. I'm amazed about how much our small church is doing to help those in need. When there's a need that arises, you guys are quick to say, how can we help? And so thank you. You understand, you all understand that the church has various needs and you're doing your best to attend those needs, even if you're going through your darkest moments. So again, thank you for your sacrifice. Let me move on to our next point this morning. And here we find the first miracle in our passage where Jesus reveals his power over disease. Jesus reveals his power over disease. All right, so temporarily taking our attention away from Jairus and his daughter, we find the story unfold for the woman. It starts with what I call the woman's touch. Look at verse 27. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Look, as I just mentioned, it would have been ceremonially unclean for the woman to touch anyone, let alone be in the crowd of thousands. However, Mark is pointing to something very unique in this situation. The woman acted on what she heard about Jesus up until this point. She acted on it, right? So again, she left her place of isolation. She acted on what she heard about Jesus, heard about his, pre- his teaching, his preaching, his power maybe. But keep in mind, she doesn't seek Jesus himself at first. She sought Jesus for, the, for, for his power and healing. Some commentators would say that her hope or faith was partly based on, on superstition. One commentary puts it this way. One of the widespread beliefs of that day was that if one could get close to a great man or to a healer like Jesus and touch his clothing, that that would be all it would take for her to be healed. Although she sought Jesus for healing or even touch or even a touch of his garments for healing, she displayed great faith. Hear this. Hear this out. This is what's happening. Look, her, her theology may not be as pristine because of her superstition, but her faith is what connected her to Jesus. Her faith is what connected her to Jesus. Again, think about this. Out of the thousands that thronged, that pressed toward Jesus, only one woman caught Jesus' attention. What we find here is that she reached reached out and touched him and did so in faith. She was instantly healed, as the text says, and she felt it and knew it immediately. Here's the thing. Jesus felt the woman's touch too. 
something happened. Something happened, and it made him stop in the middle of another crisis to find out what's going on, right? He was on his way. He was walking towards, with, with Jairus and his people and, and his disciples. Someone touched him in the crowd, right? And what does it say? And Jesus, perceiving himself, that power had gone out for him. What's happening? Jesus lost power. And I, I call this the master's response, the master's response. Now, this is the first for, for some of us to read something along these lines, that, that power had gone out from Jesus. I've never read that before. And so immediately the question is, why would power leave Jesus after the woman was healed? Why would power leave Jesus? There are varying opinions. Some say that such healings cause Jesus much spiritual energy. For you call Matthew 8, verse 17, he was quoting Isaiah 53, and he says this, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So all these healings maybe took a lot of spiritual energy away from Jesus. He, he had authority over disease. That's what it tells us in, in Mark chapter 1. But we also see Jesus' humanity on display as well with his power leaving him. If you recall the, the, his interaction with the leper, we find Jesus' humanity was on display because it says he was moved with compassion. He was moved with pity. Therefore, what we find is both Jesus' divine power in healing, but also, listen, also his human nature in dealing with people. And in this case, he was absorbing her disease. Remember, Old Testament law in Leviticus is very clear that everything this woman touched would have been considered unclean. What is Jesus doing? He's absorbing her disease. She touched Jesus, and Jesus felt it. I think what Mark's alluding to here is that Jesus, although fully human and fully divine, exhausted much energy in his healings, especially this one. And so this, this is such a beautiful reminder of what we have here when we encounter Christ. It was Jesus who took our sin on the cross. He fully absorbed the wrath of God for our sins, past, present, and future, so that we could be clean. Through his death and resurrection, he made us clean. And because of that, we are now made righteous. That's the gospel. Going back to the woman's story, we find that Jesus was not done with her yet. And we find it in Jesus' question. Look at the end of verse 30. He immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Friends, listen here. If, if you believe in Christ in your heart, you must confess Christ with your mouth. If you believe in Christ in your heart, you must confess Christ with your mouth. The woman thought she could, she could just get the healing. She thought she could just believe in her heart and, say, and have faith and just, just get the healing. That's what she wanted. But she got more than what she bargained for. And that's always the case with Jesus. We can go to Jesus for something we think we ultimately want, but in almost all cases, Jesus doesn't just want 
to relieve our distress. He wants us. And Mark shows us that in our next point. Jesus, in all his wisdom, wants the truth from the woman. I'm going to point this out. Jesus shows his compassion over those in despair. So Jesus, in searching for the woman, and the woman is overcome, what I say is fear. Now, there are two, type, two different types of fear going on here. Just how the disciples were filled with fear over, from the storm and eventually would, were, were filled with, with more fear because they, they witnessed Jesus' power over creation, we find the same scenario here. The woman, after being cured, is now overcome with both relief and fear of Jesus. The fear was a reaction to Jesus' question, who touched my garments? Right? If, if you heard the Messiah say that, talking, who touched my garments? What do you think struck the woman's heart? I, I, say, um, I call it the fear of the woman, the fear of the woman. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, what does it say? She came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus. Again, the, remember, the woman came to Jesus originally wanting to be healed. But when she finally got what she wanted, Jesus ultimately wanted more from her. What do you think that was? What does it say in verse 33 at the end? She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him what? The whole truth. I sort of wish Mark told us what she exactly said. But here's what I see is happening. Right? Jesus did not leave it alone. He didn't say, or, you know, he didn't say, well, she's healed. Or she didn't say, look, I'm healed, goodbye, right? Here's, here's what Jesus is wanting. He wanted a public declaration. He wanted the whole truth from this woman. He wanted that public declaration from this woman. And I'll, I'll get to the, the reason. So the question is, what do, what do you think is happening here? What, what is Mark trying to draw out? Here's what I want us to understand. Here's what I want us to see. She's a woman in a male-dominated society. She was unclean. Just a few moments ago, people could not touch her. Now, Christ has made her clean. And Jesus is saying, look, if you come to me in faith, I don't want you to be scared. In giving the whole truth, the woman is giving a, a public testimony of her coming to faith in Christ. Look, I, I want to be very careful here in stating that this woman is testifying saving faith in Christ. But, but I think Jesus helps us out here. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, what? Daughter. That's an intimate relationship. And then he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Look, look, don't miss this. I'm, allow me to, to get a little technical here. In the original language, the term has made you well is the word save. It's the same Greek, Greek term used for saving faith. Translation really is your faith has saved you. Therefore, her faith led to a complete healing. But also, listen, the object of her faith, Jesus Christ, delivered her from the ultimate disease. John MacArthur goes on to say, Jesus' words strongly suggest that the woman's faith 
also led to spiritual salvation. She was healed of her ultimate disease. Jesus wanted the whole truth. Jesus didn't want to just heal the woman of her disease. He wanted her. He wanted the woman. It was Jesus who sought her in the crowd, right? In turn, Jesus tells her to go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman who, who once feared for her life and society is now at peace because of Jesus. This woman never had a moment's peace in 12 long years. And only Jesus can say, do not fear anymore. You're now free from pain and misery. Go in peace, my child. Only Jesus could say that. Friends, in your misery and pain, Jesus doesn't want to just heal you. He wants you to see the bigger picture. He wants you to see himself. Jesus wants all of you. He wants you to trust in him and not in what he gives you. One writer put it this way, if you go to Jesus, he may ask of you far more than you originally planned to give, but he can give to you infinitely more than you dared ask or think. And then we have this story shift. We're not done yet. There's one more daughter that Jesus has to save, and it's Jairus' daughter. During this time, someone else is struck with fear, and it's a synagogue ruler. It's the synagogue ruler. 35, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. This by far is the worst news for any parent, to hear that your child is dead. Death of any kind is never good news because we, we were never meant to die in the first place. But in light of all that's going on, Jairus' fear now has become a reality. His daughter is dead. And so imagine, church, the news upon hearing this, just as a parent or a death of a loved one. Look, look, I know this is a sensitive topic for some of you, and so I'm gonna tread lightly. I cannot preach to your pain, but I can preach to you, Jesus Christ. Look, in your deepest pains, let me remind you again to look to Christ especially how this story concludes. Let me set this story back up for us. This story now continues back from verse 24, right? When they were on their way to Jairus' home, when they hear about Jairus' daughter's death. So what we have here, we have this person who relayed the news of, the, of death naturally asked. Look at verse 35, the end. Why trouble the teacher any further? In other words, there was no reason to have Jesus go with them in their eyes. Yet this is a great reminder for us that we are never troubling the Lord Jesus Christ. When it may seem like all hope is lost and the Lord is laying an answer, it's usually a lesson we need to learn, even now. You could call to him in the danger of your storm and the darkness that surrounds you, and he will hear your call just like he heard the disciples cry in the midst of the storm. In the middle of the heartbreaking news, Jesus responds to Jairus. Look at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ here saying, look, look, I know what you just heard. I know you're devastated. 
but it's not too late. Do not fear, but trust in me. In the original text is indicating that keep on believing. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep on believing. So often we hear these words, yet choose to not fully grasp this type of trust in Jesus, right? We could tell you, hey, trust in Jesus, but are you really trusting in Jesus? Let me give you an example. It's like a little child who goes to bed and after the lights turn off and mommy and daddy walk out, she cries out to her parents and says, mommy, daddy. Why should she do that? Because she fears the dark. And so naturally as a parent, we say, something along these lines, don't be afraid, right? We're just in the other room. We're we're close by. We won't let anything happen to you. Sometimes it's not immediate, but the more the child believes in the love and the power of her parents to prevent any harm, the more the child will lose fear and be at peace. As parents, we say, don't be afraid. I don't want anything to happen to you. How much more is our Heavenly Father saying to us, don't be afraid, I won't let anything happen to you. He may allow temporary pain, but he has the power to keep us from lasting pain. Do not fear, but believe in him this morning. There's no reason to be scared, but keep on believing. Our love for our children does not compare to the father's love toward his children. Church, believe in that. Therefore, once again, we need to see the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing here. What may seem like malpractice to the world, Jesus knows what he's doing, right? It may be considered malpractice that that Jesus tending to the woman before the child, but the bigger picture here is, look, Jesus never says, oops. He never says, oh, my bad. You know, I, I, that, I slipped my mind, right? He, he is in control of all things, even if it doesn't seem like his timing is right. He is the great physician. In Luke's account, Luke says that Jesus said this, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. She will be well, which takes us to our last point this morning. It's where we find Jesus' compassion and power over death. Jesus' compassion, compassion over power and, and power over death, excuse me. The first thing we see here as the scene unfolds are the mourners and wailers. Am I right? It's what I call a hopeless people. A hopeless people. Even a hopeless family. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. In some contexts, they would say that these were professional mourners, right? They would be hired when, 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 when death happened. These people would be hired to just wail and weep aloud, and so Jesus saw this commotion. But I also want to I want to know a couple things here. It's the first time Mark mentions these three disciples as a special group, right? It's, it's Jesus' inner circle, so to speak. And it's the same group that Jesus would take to the transfiguration in chapter 9. But what we also find here coincides with Jewish tradition. It was custom, like I just mentioned, for people to surround death 
the death of a person to wail and weep loudly. And here, the reason I think Mark includes this is because he wants his audience or his reader to know that Jairus' daughter was really, in fact, dead. That's why he's putting this in here. There were weepers, wailers. There was all this commotion going on. If you don't believe me, this, 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 this little child was dead. All evidence points to that fact. From the people delivering the news to Jairus, to the people in the house that were mourning. Yet when the Lord arrives, he gives a word of hope to the parents. Look at verse 39. And we had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And so they laugh at him. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He, he puts them outside. He sort of just kicked them out. He said, get out of here. It's, it's, it's another picture, right? They, they laughed at the one. They laughed at Jesus. They laughed at the one who's about to show them a resurrection. Friends, small glimpse of what's gonna happen on the way to the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was humiliated. People were laughing at him. Yet Jesus took it all. Another thing I want us to understand is that if, if you wanted to, I want us to see Jesus' humility here for just a moment, okay? If you wanted a, a huge group of people to believe that you're indeed the son of God, what would you do? You would call everyone to witness this resurrection, wouldn't you? I mean, you want the cameras, you want all the bloggers, you want Twitter, Instagram, you want Facebook people there. You want to make big headlines. You want the world to see what's going on. Forget all the miracles that happened to this po- up until this point. You want to prove that Jesus is Messiah, you prove it right here. People need to see this. But that doesn't happen, am I right? Who's the audience? Who's the audience? It says, Jesus took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So who was it? It was his father, it was the parents, it was Peter, James, and John. This was no public event for the savior of the world. The public event would come on his terms. One commentary put it like this, the Lord Jesus had perfect confidence in the power of God to publicize his own word Powerful yet humble Jesus we see again. The last thing we see here, and here's the climax, we see a resurrected life through Christ. A resurrected life through Christ. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. The end of chapter four, we begin with Jesus' power over creation. He rebuked the storms with these words, peace, be calm. Last week, he rebuked the man that was demon-possessed. He said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Great authority with his words, am I right? Yet what we find here is a compassionate and tender Jesus showing his power over life. The all-powerful son of God who created the world with a few simple words, gives us such a beautiful and soft picture of God himself. Friends, don't, don't forget, this is God in the flesh. 
So imagine the scene. He takes the father and mother, right? They gather around the child. The disciples are present. And taking her by the hand, very tenderly taking her by the hand, Jesus, the greatest pastor, ministering to the family. Look, I'm gonna pause here for a moment. Think about the law of that day. It was forbidden to touch an unclean woman, as in the previous scene, but also it was forbidden to touch a dead person. Jesus does both. He is the Lord over the Sabbath. He is Lord over the law. Death will not stop him. And so he touches the little girl's hand. And it continues. He said to her, Talithakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. The translation goes far deeper than this. Jesus really is saying, look, honey, honey, sweetie, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up from your sleep. Friends, this is God. Jesus didn't want to startle her, startle, startle her, but he gives her comfort as he restores her to life. What a beautiful picture of the great shepherd, the great pastor, soft and tender Jesus holding the little girl's hand and saying, honey, it's time to get up. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Look, this girl was no baby. She didn't need to relearn how to walk. She just got up and started walking, no therapy needed. The parents wanted a healing, if you remember in verse 23, but they received far more than they expected. They witnessed a resurrection, and they were amazed. I mean, do you recognize the theme here, church? The disciples wanted to be safe, but they got the Lord over creation. The woman only wanted to be healed, but she got Jesus himself. The parents wanted medical attention, but what they got was a resurrection of their baby. You may be here this morning wanting a miracle, and you've been wait, you waited a long time, but let me submit to you that Jesus will give you more than what you expect. He will give you himself. Now, I want to conclude here by just one of the mind-boggling mind verse in 43. I'm just going to conclude here. Verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What, what is going on here? If someone was raised from death to life in this room and Pastor Rod said, don't tell anyone, would you listen? Look, be honest. Would you listen? I mean, this is nothing new. We've seen this before. We've seen this. And Jesus said this, right, to the leper. Chapter 1, verse 44. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and so forth. It continues. Jesus continues to say this. Look, don't tell anyone what you just saw. So what's going on? Practically speaking, maybe Jesus didn't want to cause a commotion with the crowd, right? Because it's a big deal, Am I right? If someone is dead and they're now alive, that's a huge deal. I don't think that's the case entirely. I think, I think Jesus is too wise for this. 
So why do you say this? Well, we know that he, he didn't want to be known for only his miracles, right? He wants you to be amazed at him. But I, what I want us to see is really the overall picture of the gospel of Mark, okay? Listen, this wasn't the time to spread the message of a resurrection. This wasn't the time. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. People are not going to recognize him as the Messiah right now. Not, not in chapter 5. The message of the gospel is not quite lived out in its entirety yet. Work still needs to be done. And he will not be recognized as God in the flesh until when? Until the very end when the centurion sees him and realizes what? What does he say? Truly, this man was the son of God. Let me show you what Mark is doing here. Mark is showing that Jesus Christ is really the master of all danger, demons, disease, and death. The last one is not the death that Jesus ultimately wants us to see. Let me say that again. This picture in Mark 5 is not the last death Jesus wants us to see. I see it as he didn't want people to know this because his ultimate death, his ultimate death will be the message, will, will be the message that needs to be told to people everywhere. That's the message Jesus wants people to, to send out. Not this resurrection, his resurrection. Listen to me. What Jesus is doing is showing great humility by submitting himself to the greatest death and resurrection of all time. What we have in chapter 4 through chapter 5 is a small glimpse into what Jesus is going to do. And it's going to be played out through the book of Mark. Here's what I mean. Jesus went through the most dangerous of situations. He took the storm on our behalf. Jesus allowed the prince of demons to crucify him on the cross. Satan bruised his heel, Genesis 3. But what happened? Jesus crushed his head. He conquered all darkness, all demons through his death. Jesus took our greatest disease. He took our sin and absorbed the wrath that we deserved because of our sin. He lost all his power so that we may gain life. Jesus submitted to his own death on the cross where he lost, listen, he submitted to his own death on the cross where he lost his father's hand. But he took our hand and said, little child, little lamb, your sins are forgiven. It is finished. It is time to wake up. I say to you, arise. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus wants us to see. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ has defeated death on the cross. Let us sing praises to him. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, thank you again just for this miraculous passage. It is so much to unpack. But Lord, it is not about the passage. It is more about you, more about your power, more about seeing you. And so I pray, Father, now that as a church body, that you are being hammered into our hearts so that when darkness overcomes us, when things happen in our life, no one could pull, us, pull you out because you got us by the hand. You got us by the heart. What a, 
such a lovely picture here that you've brought us from death unto life. You held our hand. In our salvation, you said, little child, arise. And so, Lord, let us take this home with us. Let us praise you because you saved us. Lord, we give you all the glory today. May you be praised in Jesus' name, amen.